There are different ways to build the future. As an investor, I bucket three very distinct categories of company building or types of companies that you see in Southeast Asia. One is building in Southeast Asia for Southeast Asia using models that have worked in developed markets. Two is building in Southeast Asia for the rest of the world. The third category is building for Southeast Asia in Southeast Asia, but with business models that are just unique to the region. E-fisheries is one of those. What are sectors that are uniquely Thai, uniquely Vietnam, uniquely Indonesian, and are able to innovate on that? That's where you're truly innovating, where you're not just copying models that work, but really building something that's unique to that country. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, Sarah founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. Are you expanding or launching a business in the Philippines? Ensuring your employees' good health is key to attracting and retaining top talent. That's where Hive Health comes in, especially for startups and small to medium-sized businesses. They specialize in providing top quality and hassle-free healthcare plans tailored to your workplace. Learn more at www.ourhivehealth.com. Hey, Wing, really excited to have you on the show again. We're going to launch the quarterly report and podcast on Thailand. So really excited to welcome you as a co-host. On that note, Wing, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeremy. So definitely been following your episodes and all your other co-hosts and your content. So excited to, to come back. And yeah, thanks for having me back. I think the first episode we did was probably maybe like two years ago or something like that now. So we'll uh, start fresh. I'll start by introducing myself. So my name is Wing. I'm the founder and general partner of WV. That's a solo GP fund investing across Southeast Asia. What that means is basically I'm the only partner. There's no associates, analysts, no staff. It's a team of one. We have a traditional fund structure. So it's a traditional setup with LPs and GPs, but no processes, no deal memos, no staff. It's kind of just me going at it, investing across the region. So I'm managing about 15 million in AUM now. I'm very focused on investing at the pre-seed and seed stage. So the way I think of it, it's like, First round of financing, that's when I want to get to another company and partner with them from day one. I'm investing across Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Thailand, which I think is a topic we'll get into today. So those are the four core geographies, usually based out of Bangkok, traveling across all these regions. It's a sector agnostic fund. So, you know, we're generalists, very founder driven in our analysis and how we do diligence. So invested across B2B, B2C, hardware, fintech, marketplaces, been investing across the region for about four years now. Before this, was working in San Francisco with a tech company called Angelus on their operations team. And the thesis of the fund was really to bridge the gap between Southeast Asia and Silicon Valley. So I raised capital from founders, operators, venture partners, and partners of venture funds in the U.S. to invest across Southeast Asia. I'm excited to be here and share a bit more about the fund, our investing, and the Thai market with you today. Amazing. So I think the Thai market has someone that has been of interest for many folks, right? When people come 
come to Southeast Asia, obviously, I remember dinner I had with a family office exploring Southeast Asia. And so it was very much like, okay, you know, let's talk about Singapore, let's talk about Indonesia, let's talk about Vietnam. And then at that pause, I was like, I'd like to ask you some questions about Thailand, right? So it was in that sequence. Right? And I was like, that is an interesting dynamic. And recently you wrote this report about the Thai market. So could you share a bit more about what this report is about? Yeah, sure. So I guess if, if we take a step back a bit, I think it's very much agreeing with you. That's how most of the conversations go. You start with Singapore, which is very much the hub of everything. And that's outside of Thailand. That's probably the market where I spend the most time, have the most investments. It's where all the investors are. So capital inflow and outflow is really flowing through Singapore. And then you have Indonesia, which is just giant population. 300 million people, $1.3 trillion GDP. So it's a massive market. They have their own local funds that have done very well, scaled up quickly. And then usually closely behind that in third, you have Vietnam. Vietnam usually seen as a rising market. A lot of excitement there as well, I think. There's a couple of local independent funds who have done well. And then after that, you kind of have the Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines. Those three are kind of competing for the, the fourth market. And Philippines has been growing very well, given how big their population is and all the excitement in that ecosystem and venture and tech. Thailand as a market has been very interesting. So I guess context on myself is I'm Thai, born and raised in Bangkok, lived here for 18 years before moving to the U.S. and then back in 2020. Thailand as a market, it's the second largest economy in Southeast Asia, just GDP wise. Indonesia, I think it's like 1.3 trillion and Thailand's about 500 billion GDP wise. So it's a very sizable market. Population wise, 70 million people. So I think that would make it four behind in Indonesia, Vietnam, and, and the Philippines, who have 70 million people. And I think the more interesting stat with Thailand, apart from just how big the economy actually is, is just how online and digitally engaged consumers in this market actually are. So from the report where I collaborated with um, BCG and Alpha Founders Capital, we found very interesting stats, like 90% of households in Thailand have some kind of internet access. 80% are using some form of e-commerce or have used some form of e-commerce service. And the average time spent online on the internet is about nine hours a day, right? I think it was a couple of years ago where Facebook released a stat that, yeah, it, it's crazy. It's, a lot of people are online all the time. Facebook released a stat a few years ago that I think Thailand was number one in terms of just like hours that consumers spend on the Facebook application, whether that's like Messenger, Instagram, or Facebook itself. I think this was like two or three years ago. So I think that's the first thing to realize is that it's not really a developing market connectivity wise it's already developed like people are already online people are used to spending time online used to buying things online but the winners have been either the large international companies like the multi-billion facebook's of the world or the large regional place and there haven't been that many local type companies that have emerged so i think it's an interesting place to start the conversation just kind of setting the scene in the context of the market yeah and i think it's interesting that this is the first deep report on the Thai startup ecosystem. It's collaboration between BCG, BCGX, yourself, as well as Alpha Founders Capital. So really fascinating to see that. But more importantly, I think it spells out what you just said, because every time you read a report, it's always like, everything's great. And I think what was interesting is that you really started out this report. And I love the fact that you kind of contrasted that, which is contrasted like exactly what you just said, which is the GDP story, also the developed dynamic where it looks like on many dimensions, Thailand should be perhaps the second largest ecosystem in startups. So this is the first report I felt that has really spelled out some of the dynamics that you just shared, which is that there was a lot of optimism about the Thai ecosystem 10 years ago, because you felt like based on the GDP, the GDP per capita, the connectivity, the infrastructure, that Thailand should be 
one of the top three startup ecosystems, right? And I love that slide that you had here, which is today, Singapore has about 1,800 startups. Indonesia is about 900. Vietnam has about 400. Malaysia is 300. Philippines has 200. And Thailand has about 200 startups. So in the ASEAN 6, Thai startups are actually six in terms of the total number of funded startups versus, like, you know, all these macro fundamentals they have. And I think there's always been a big question mark. And I think while the dynamics is that and the local VCs who are very experienced, I think it was a very big surprise because 10 years ago, everybody was like, you know, everybody's going to spend time in Singapore and everybody's going to spend time in Thailand. And now fast forward that story, Thailand is six out of the six other economies. When, like you said, some metrics could be number two, some metrics could be number three, number four. So I think there's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a big part of the motivation behind wanting to put together the report as well. There hasn't really been this comprehensive study and overview and, and deep dive into what exactly is happening in the ecosystem, first of all, identifying what's happening and then figuring out what are some of the problems and then charting charting the best path forward or how we can rally the ecosystem together and really live up to that story that was told 10 plus years ago. And I think BCG, they did the bulk of this and they did a great job just going very deep. We spoke to a lot of stakeholders. We worked with Tech in Asia, actually, they were our data partner and that's where the stats come from. The number of startups you listed were basically startups that have raised capital. So any kind of form of capital and like 180 is a, it's a very small number. If you think about it, right, it's like 70 million people, relatively large country, but only 180 companies or so have raised capital, which is to me, surprisingly small. And we can talk a bit about some of the, the reasons behind that. One interesting thing to highlight also is that within the country, there's only been four unicorns, at least compared to Vietnam, Indonesia, this number is lagged behind. And I don't even know if I'd cut these four unicorns as real unicorns. There's Flash Express, which is a logistics company, OPN payments company, Send Money, FinTech, and then Lineman, which is a e-commerce kind of super app of sorts. But two of those, Send Money and Lineman Rongnai, are really more corporate spin-offs as opposed to companies that went through the process of raising money and really making it to that unicorn status from scratch. And that's really who you want to look to as kind of role models in, in the ecosystem. So that, that was really the big motivation behind the report, just really understand the causes, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into in a little bit, and then also chartering what's potentially exciting, right? Where are some of the opportunities that we see in the market where there's still to innovate and what would actually catalyze the growth of this market? Yeah, thanks for spelling that out. And I think that's something that somebody who's a newcomer to the Southeast Asia ecosystem would not really see that because they see four, four unicorns, but like exactly like you said, two of them were heavily corporate sponsored. That being said, I don't believe there's ever an immaculate conception here. So, you know, I think every ecosystem at the start will always have more of these types of companies and hopefully that paves the way for future folks. But I think let's double click on that. So, like, what, so what happened, right? Because 10 years ago, there's a lot of optimism about Thailand. There's a lot of these fundamental macros that you talked about was also true. 10 years ago, right? I would say even more true, actually, in terms of the lead, in terms of GDP per capita infrastructure. So from your perspective, this will give us a good platform to talk about what needs to change in the future. But what do you think has happened over the past 10 years from your perspective? Yeah, so I think there's three main things that have made it challenging for startup to thrive in Thailand. Or you can also look at it as three reasons why startups haven't grown. So the most common one that you hear people talk about, this is something that we identified in the report, and maybe it's the more obvious 
one is this idea of lack of funding. We looked through the Thai ecosystem, looked at who was funding what, and it turns out there are not that many venture funds in Thailand in general. If you end up cutting out the CVCs, the corporate funds, that number dwindles even more. There's very few independent funds. I think there's like four or five that we identified that have headquarters in Thailand and are investing in Thailand. So that's one. People often cite that as the biggest one, right? this idea of because there's no risk capital involved, it makes it more difficult to start companies, to take that risk, to take that job. There's no kind of know-how or expertise of that early stage of funding to support these founders who want to take that risk. So that's usually the biggest and most obvious reason people give. Me personally, even though the data does show this, I am less convinced that this is a big barrier. My belief is that in a free market, capital will find its way to kind of the most efficient use case. Like my belief is that if there are promising Thai companies that have excellent founders, big market opportunities, and can prove out interesting early traction, I think that capital will flow towards that. And I don't think that like all of the funds regionally are looking to invest, right? They want to invest. They have these giant funds. They want to deploy in, in exciting opportunities. So I don't personally think that's biggest limiting factor. Number two, the thing that people talk about sometimes in relation to Thailand is the corporates as a whole. The strength of the corporates and their role in the economy make it difficult for startups to thrive for a couple of reasons. One interesting thing to highlight, I don't remember if it's 2018 or 2019, but Thailand was number one in terms of the highest inequality in the world. We are number one on the Gini coefficient, which is pretty crazy. Like small country in Southeast Asia, number one in terms of inequality. Basically a very big gap between the haves and the have-nots. You see this dynamic play out in the corporate world as well. There's a couple of challenges when the corporates become very powerful. Mainly is that it's hard to compete with them. They're very good. They are able to typically move pretty fast, good relationship with regulators and able to basically lock in consumers. You see this especially in like the banks for example, I think like SCB and Gasigon, two of the biggest banks in Thailand, they really haven't rested on their laurels in terms of innovation and tech. They've built out these independent units. SCB had a whole restructuring, which enabled them to build a venture builder or build a venture fund. And these guys actually move pretty quickly on innovation. So it's very hard to compete against them. And the second part of the corporates is that there were these CVCs, let's say about like 2017, 2018 timeframe. At that point, the ecosystem looked like it could have been booming. All these accelerators, all these funds, every corporate was like, hey, we're going to dedicate X million dollars to support innovation, support the startup. And it ended up being that there were not very many success stories that came from that, right? So from the outside looking in, you saw that, hey, there are all these, there's all these sources of funding that's ready to invest. It's great for startups, going to feel the ecosystem. But in reality, when you look closely at it. Basically, it was the corporates that were behind every single initiative. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, right? Like some corporates have done a pretty good job investing, but it's difficult to do well because as a CVC, you always have these two motivations that are inherently don't always align, which is strategic investments that will support the parent company and financial returns. And those two necessarily will conflict with each other at one time or another. And I think for me, like the best CVCs that actually do a good job, if you look at Google Ventures or GV in the US or even a Gojek CVC fund, they, they rebranded recently. I think they've done like a really good job as like CVCs and why they do well is because they spin out and they're almost completely independent which basically eliminates that problem of the conflicting incentives. So yeah, having corporates with that much power 
makes it a challenge for startups as well. Those are, I think, two big reasons why we haven't seen that the ecosystem deliver on its promise. Yeah, I really want to go to the third one. But my quick reaction to that is that I think that funding is the obvious one because, like you said, funding rounds are very much a function and a signal of the gatekeeper saying there's anointing, but also the rocket fuel go to the next stage. But it's also a voting mechanism because people are basically saying they don't see the opportunity there. And so there's an interesting dynamic, which is that in the early years of ecosystem, system. I think a lot of folks are covering Southeast Asia from Singapore and then basically scanning the whole landscape. So I think one thing that's actually triggered my head is that within ASEAN as well, it's not only a story of, let's say, Thailand being further behind what I think the metrics of what its macros are, but also I think to some extent also Singapore's outperforming others because they were that sanctuary, but also hub for capital where people are able to have that connectivity they need, the government support in the early days, but also it was a fertile time. So when there was a priming of the capital pump by the Singapore government to incentivize private capital, to set up base, I think he had all of the other parts that were already there, right? Which was like English fluency, educated workforce, finance sector, entrepreneurial sector. So it was a fertile time. Singapore became that hub in that sense. But yep. then there was a time period exactly in that time where almost every investor that was based in Singapore, and that was before I think the Vietnam and the Indonesia local capital ecosystem grew up. There was a time when there was a scanning of every market. And I think within that subset, excluding Singapore, there was a fairness search looking for startups. So I think that's nuance that I want to add to that capital side. And then secondly, I think the tricky part, my immediate reaction is that startups are meant to disrupt incumbents. Fundamentally, that's where a lot of the economic value is because when you have a startup, you're basically increasing competition in the sector, right? And one of the ways that a lot of startups look at it is they say, hey, we do a market landscape where the profit pools, where there's a lot of margin, which basically implies that the service is basically too pricey or that people are underserved and then go after that vertical, right? So I think a lot of those stories around fintechs all around the world has been like, okay, thanks. These are the profit pools. Let's go after Visa or MasterCard. And the one approach of thinking about it, but it is a reflection of the fact that there is a awkward reality, which is that there is an attacker mentality of a startup. And that means, of course, is that do you have a society that favors, but also protects it? And I think there's an interesting dynamic, which is, I think there's always a big trade-off in every society. So I think like IP patent systems is a good example of that in the US, right? It's like, we reward you if you were willing to innovate to give you pattern protections to be able to have a monopoly profit of it for 10, 20, 30 years. But at the same part of time, how do you become the attacker who becomes the incumbent? Yeah. That those same rights can be used to squeeze out. And I think that's what's happening in the Apple or oxygen sensor. We have an innovator <laughs> versus Apple. There's a court case going on. But what's interesting is that in totality, the legal system actually has that balancing act to try to do between competition, right? And I think that's what's something I thought of when you mentioned about the dynamic of incumbent corporates and startups. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. So do you think it's more cultural or do you think it's more kind of baked into like just the legal system in terms of this dynamic? Like, do you favor incumbents? Do you favor new entities? trends. How do you think about that? I mean, it's a function of both, right? I think the reality is that every system is by nature fundamentally conservative in the sense that new laws are not built every year. They catch up to whatever it is. So I think if people want to be entrepreneurial and they watch like YouTube. And I think that's actually a good example is I've noticed a lot of Filipino entrepreneurs who are very entrepreneurial. And I think a big part of it is that they're learning from Silicon Valley over YouTube and podcasts in English. And so I've coined this phrase called language locks. But to some extent, the Philippines, they have a very strong cultural linkage with the US. And so I think I've met so many American Filipino diaspora, but also Filipinos who are very, I don't know, what's clued into that American culture of hustle. Or... And so there's an interesting thing where you're like, 
you see the pitch and everything, I was like, oh, can we see the flavor of that, those things in terms of how they pitch, present, and frame up the problem. So I think there's an interesting dynamic where English fluency and all these other links play a big part of it. But I think the system eventually does it, it has to react. And I think we see that a little bit in China, which is that if you're building businesses, there was like a big time when people did gaming, education, and now based on the government regulatory changes, where to some extent, these large companies are no longer, I wouldn't say favored, but I think they're definitely being regulated and their market cap is getting effectively penalized effectively. Then founders are going to say like, I'm not going to build in gaming because it turns out the government does not like our youth to be gaming. So I think there's a very clear sector specific, but I think if you're willing to be a founder in defense tech or semiconductor in China, you're, you're going to be like, great, I'm allowed to be entrepreneurial. I want to be entrepreneurial and the system rewards me, encourages me to be entrepreneurial. So I think you need to have all of it. So I'm kind of curious from your perspective, what you think about how that applies to the Thai ecosystem? Yeah, I think that's a question that I spend a lot of time thinking about, which is just this idea of, is it more top down or bottoms up in terms of what actually fuels innovation in an economy, right? Like you talk about Singapore as like a golden example of small country that's just done very well positioned itself as like the hub in Southeast Asia. And to me, at least that was very clearly top down. It was like, government initiatives, like a well-run government, stable regime, planning for the future, and this high emphasis on education, technology, creating this safe haven with all the tax rules as well. There's just made it a very attractive investing environment. And I don't know if there's anything inherently entrepreneurial about Singaporean people as like part of the culture. I, I don't know. But it seems like it's just very clearly a good job of government top-down regulatory. And I know we, we talked about this probably before, but they seeded the first generation of all the venture funds in, in Singapore, right? I believe a lot of the top regional funds now are basically byproducts or initially seeded by the Singaporean government, which is really cool. It's like a great idea, right? And I don't think many other countries do that. But then if I contrast that with, let's say, Vietnam, where maybe politically it's not as stable, but they've still done a really good job of positioning themselves as a number three in Southeast Asia in terms of startups and, and the excitement. And when I look at that country, every time I visit, I think it's more cultural in that sense. I think people there are just naturally very entrepreneurial. They're risk-taking. They have this ownership, risk-taking mentality that I think I don't see in many other countries. Everywhere you go, people have a side hustle. They're excited. They're working towards building their own thing. And you very much feel the energy when you're at Ho Chi Minh in regards to that. So I think that's exciting. So I guess if we apply that to Thailand, that was actually going to be my third point as to why it hasn't lived up to its promise over the last 10 years. I believe it's a cultural thing. And there are many ways that we can look at this, but following the top talent is usually a good place to start. So if you look at the top talent, and I'm going to define that as may or may not be true to the top talent, but let's look at folks who were born in Thailand, raised in Thailand, but end up studying abroad. They go to the US, they go to the UK, whatever that is. That's usually like a pretty good diaspora of entrepreneurs to look at, talented people. So they study abroad and they come back. So it's kind of like the, not the brain drain folks who stayed abroad, but those who come back. If you look at that group of people, they are almost exclusively in things like banking or consulting. Of course, there are exceptions here or there, but for the most part, I think 90 plus percent of people I know, friends in my circle, they're all drawn to that as like the high status, high prestige jobs. And so that's a very different mentality than starting a company, taking a risk and basically being a founder. If that's where all the high prestige jobs are, that's where the top talent is moving to. It makes sense that is the ecosystem that's going to grow because the talent is 
there. So I think that's number one, just culturally. Number two, Thai people are actually quite entrepreneurial in terms of starting companies and wanting to be business owners. But the aspiration typically isn't to be like the next Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos. It's more to start these quote unquote lifestyle businesses where you're profitable from the start, you're making money, you generate a really good living for yourself, and you're able to basically keep these profits, build a good business, but not necessarily scale for the sake of scaling. It's more like sustainable lifestyle businesses that do really well for you personally. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just people knowing what they want there, want that high luxurious, high income earner life early on, and are not necessarily going out to build those billion dollar plus companies. Part of the reason for that might be there are actually not many success stories, even across the region, and especially in Thailand, of people who have made it in terms of starting a company, exiting at a billion dollar valuation, creating a lot of wealth for employees. So just has, you haven't seen that, right? So there's not like a visceral reaction of like, hey, I've seen that happen there that's a potential path so people opt i think for the safer more sustainable path for them which i think at the end they can build a great life for them but doesn't necessarily fall into the startup ecosystem that us as investors would look for so i think that's the last point for me which i think it's very big culturally and i'm starting to see that change a little bit we can talk a bit about why that is but i think just like bottoms up culture wise it hasn't been conducive to startups taking risk and like the people who have done that who have gone down that path are more outliers and it's not something that's necessarily like high status in, in the society here at least you know i have to ask this but if you're more americanized does it mean that you like startups more i mean it's a good question right? i think it also depends on where you are in america right because it's not necessarily true like that everywhere across the u.s you're gonna be excited about startups like i think california like to me, the unique thing about California, Silicon Valley, is this culture of not only just accepting, but embracing your failures. People wear it as a badge of honor that they started a failed company. And that's not the same in, in Southeast Asia. I see it here when I talk to founders, they're more reluctant to share bad news. People aren't excited or, or they're not proud to say that, hey, I started a company that didn't work out the same way that they are in, in Silicon Valley. I think that's actually one of the big ingredients of more Americanized, more risk-taking and more open or accepting of your failures as, as part of the story. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's interesting because there's that cultural component. And, and I say this as an Americanized person, right? As well, you know, I did my undergrad at UC Berkeley, then I did my MBA in Boston. So these are all entrepreneurial hotspots. So, you know, very much in that tribe and community. But if you're in a country, I would say like Singapore is also pretty westernized. It's always been this entrepreneurial kind of like trading hub between East and West. So a lot of folks have been, I wouldn't necessarily say entrepreneurial, but a lot of middlemen have always existed for in, South, in Singapore for a long time. But I think the cultural component is a little bit more obvious, like you said, if you're like in Japan, for example, it's just like, who wants to be entrepreneurial? I think one more thing to add is also immigrants in the US, immigrant founders, big source of entrepreneurial energy because the immigrant you're probably somebody, I think three, four, one is in the US, they have a talent system, right? To absorb new, hungry, the university system sucks in all these great people. I mean, like you said, lots of great Thai people, but lots of great Singaporeans and Southeast Asians all go to the US and then stay there for a long time. And then the second piece, like you said, is I think they don't have the opportunity to do the standard jobs. You can't do the police yeah. job, the government job. So technology is all those places that happy to bring you in. And then thirdly, of course, I think there's a little bit of those ladders of immigrant diaspora that lets you climb up and figure things out. And there's something that's quite interesting because there's also that reverse immigration. So I think one is like the sea turtles of immigration, right? Yeah. So like these are Southeast Asians have been Americanized 
But then also you see a bunch of waves of immigration. You see the Chinese folks leaving, you see the Russians, there's a big one as well. And they're all starting to build tech companies because they're not going to be voted in as a politician or climb the banking yeah. system. It's just, it's locked out as a career ladder for them. So I think there's an interesting dynamic. I, I don't know if that's something that you're thinking about in the entire context. Yeah, that, that's something I've been keeping an eye on, especially with the Chinese immigrants who have moved out of China. I saw this very viscerally during the crypto boom, like 2019. Or 2020, 2021, I saw and met a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs who moved out of China and moved to Thailand. I think crypto was like illegal in China, right? So they couldn't build it in that space. And a lot of them ended up moving to Singapore, but Singapore cost of living is relatively high. Quality of life, maybe not as good. Bad for your buck as, as Thailand. So a lot of them started moving to Thailand. And these were really good founders. They have like consumer founders who know how to build consumer software, understand consumer behavior, can iterate and ship very quickly. I just remember this from the conversation. I had with them. And so that's definitely a group that I'm keeping an eye on. And hopefully we'll see some innovation come out of there. The issue there is that like the immigrant groups typically operate in a very siloed manner. They're kind of like doing their own thing and not necessarily integrating with the ecosystem or with like locals as a whole. And I think that still poses a bit of a problem. Something you said just reminded me, actually, I think another driver of just culturally why maybe there hasn't been that much innovation is if you look at Thailand, and I don't know if you spent a lot of time in Bangkok or visited before, but yeah, so like things work pretty well here. It's like people are very comfortable, life is fairly good, and there's not that much of a need or a drive to innovate. I think at the very start of the conversation, I talked about how the market actually looks fairly developed already, if you like take a closer look. And I would say it's closer to developed than developing, especially in the core hub like Bangkok. Phuket. It, it looks like a developed market. And with that, I think there's just less of a need and less of a drive to fix or change things because the market is fairly developed, which might contrast with some of the other neighboring countries. That's another interesting point as well. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I, I think about venture capital and founders being the business of building the future. It's just that they say that the future is just unevenly distributed, right? And right. so you look at GDP per capita, for example, and then you look at the different countries and then you're like, yeah, there's a lot of future to still let be built. I mean, if your GDP per capita is like three times lower than the US, then you know what those phases are going to be, right? So I think there's still a lot of future to be built in Southeast Asia. But I think, like you said, people want to build it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the magic question, right? You know, exactly. And I guess one thing I'd add to that is like, there are different ways to build the future. Like in my head, as an investor, I bucket like, three very distinct categories of company building or types of companies that you see in Southeast Asia. One is building in Southeast Asia for Southeast Asia using models that have worked in developed markets. So this idea of Uber for Indonesia, Airbnb for Vietnam, but like stuff that's clearly worked before and you bring that playbook and you apply that locally. That's one. Two for me is building in Southeast Asia for the rest of the world. So maybe it's like Singapore or Vietnam or wherever is your hub, but you're building to serve more global customers. And I've had many investments in that category. More challenging, but I think that's an interesting category. The third category that I've been spending more time thinking about is building for Southeast Asia in Southeast Asia, but with business models that are just unique to the region. So not like Uber or X for Indonesia, but what are the models that are truly just unique to the region, to the ecosystem? And for me, I think e-fisheries is one of those. I think the formula for that is you look at what are sectors that are uniquely Thai, uniquely Vietnam, uniquely Indonesian, and are able to innovate on that 
And that's where you're kind of truly innovating, where you're not just copying models that work, but really building something that's unique to that country. So for me, those are like the three different buckets. Yeah, I'm curious to get your thoughts of like, are you excited about any one of those buckets in particular or what do you spend your time? You know, I think the bucket one is a lot of the no-brainer stuff in a sense that if you know that healthcare is like a quarter on a per capita expenditure in this country compared to even like a relatively developed country, I think that you can build a career in that over the next 10, 20, 30 years because you like healthcare expenditure will definitely increase over time. It's just that yeah. people just don't get access to it. So I think there's a lot of no-brainer careers, but also no-brainer businesses to be built. Now, whether you've got to do that in a slow growth way, whether you're going to do it in a private approach versus you see hyperspeed approach. That's a function of your style and your approach. But to some extent, these verticals are almost like, I just think that healthcare, for example, is going to develop very similar to, not necessarily an American model, but there's so many models in the world, right? French, French, Germans, Australians. There's so many, it's like people just want to get healthy over time and country, governments want their people to be healthy over time, but we're going to spend more. That's a no brainer, the kind of thing. But I think I agree with you about the fact that there are some specific industries as this. I mean, I'll give an example in my head, it'd be like rice. It's a big question mark because this is like they come with the US or Europe to be like oh rice farming what does your model look like in 2023 and then we teleport back in time and geography back to Southeast Asia as of today and say let's invest as if we have that time machine no that, that there's no comparable model so you have Iratani that's going after rice farming for example but I think what I think about is like island archipelago stuff is a big one so like, Southeast Asia is pretty much like a whole bunch of islands basically yep. all hanging out one another with de decent connectivity through the waterways primarily, I would say. And so that's pretty unique because America doesn't have that infrastructure as one country. It doesn't have that same dynamic. And so that's an interesting dynamic. I was reading recently as quite interesting thing. It's like Japan and South Korea are also islands, right? Because South Korea, it's borders with North Korea and North Korea connects it to China and so forth. So basically South Korea doesn't have any land links with Asia because it goes through North Korea. So South Korea is actually an island. And then, you know, Northeast Asia, Japan, Taiwan. I'm just giving an example, right? So there's a kind of an interesting dynamic where it's like, oh, how does the island mindset change how yeah. businesses are built? <laughs> Logistics is a good example. It's like all power markets. Turns out every island has its own energy, electricity market. And awesome. are we really thinking about it in a way that's like, you know, because in American models, we got to build these lines. Obviously, there's a lot of learnings, but it's not exactly the same, right? So I think I agree with you. There's a lot of uniqueness in Southeast Asia that hopefully someone who's either Southeast Asian or someone who's very localized in Southeast Asia kind of gets. Yeah. yeah, no, I'd definitely be excited to continue to track that. So we, we talked a lot about some of the factors hindering growth. Maybe we can touch on something that I'm excited about. Let's do it. Hopefully, you know, the next 10 years are, you see that step function change, right? As opposed to kind of uh, yeah. the last 10 years. So I, I think throughout the report, we identified a couple of specific areas that are exciting. I won't get into that now. You know, people can find the report and, and read that. But I think there's a couple of factors that are coming together, which I think are promising for the future of Thailand and startup. What I touched on, and this isn't mentioned in the report because it's more qualitative in nature, but that idea of culturally people spending more attention and shifting towards tech. I definitely see that happening just from stories I hear with friends and folks in my circle, right? It used to be, I think it, it still is, but for the most part, top talent go to consulting, banking, but because of the rise of these big regional platforms like Shopee, you know, from C or Lazada, a lot of the top talent are actually starting to go to those types of companies now. So starting to go to these big tech conglomerates. And I think that's like a shift towards the right direction, right? Shopee is like overpaying and hiring all these people as is Lazada when they're competing, they have a lot of capital. And so top talent starting to 
be more interested and moved into that space. And I think that's just one step closer to being a founder, learning how tech company grows and operating in that mindset. So you start to see a bit of like culturally where the top talent is moving into and it's shifting more towards tech over time, which I think is very promising. Two is you're actually seeing now a lot of new government incentives similar to what I think Singapore did six or seven years ago. The Thai government is targeting or, or I guess maybe realizing and making a more concerted effort to boost innovation, education in the region. I think the new government that was just voted in, they announced a partnership with Amazon and Google that would create 10,000 jobs in Thailand over the next couple of years. They're going to start building all these servers. They're also announced a matching fund program. So I think similar to what Singapore did, where basically the idea is if a VC or private investor makes an investment into a tech company, startup company in Thailand, the government would match those funds and it would essentially increase the size of their investments. I think this is something that's expected to launch next year. So I think that will add more excitement to the ecosystem. And there's also a lot of grants for startups now, right? There's like three main government agencies that provide grants for startups that basically allow them to function, test their hypothesis, ship something. And if they're able to take advantage of these grants and they can prove out some early traction, I think that makes them an excited candidate for investment down the line. So there's some things happening both on the top down and bottoms up level that, that get me excited about the ecosystem over the next five to 10 years, I think. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. And I guess the question I have would be, how do you think that will play out? Do you think people become more entrepreneurial as a result? How do you see that playing out? I think that's the idea, right? So like the bottoms up thing that I talked about where people are moving closer to tech as like the high prestige job like working at these big tech conglomerates, I think that is a step closer to becoming more entrepreneurial. Just when you work in these tech companies, the culture is very different than when you're working at a consulting job or at a banking job, right? Just the ownership, the high ownership mentality where you have more freedom, you have more leeway, you have high ownership over what you do. I think people inherently like that. And when they get a taste of that they see that I think that they're more likely to do that. People working at Shopee for a few years are able to leave with best practices and implement that into their own startup. And Shopee and Lazada consistently launching new products, new verticals, new categories, which means that people have the chance to be product owners and they learn how to do this in a big organization that's done well. I think that's very applicable towards starting your own company and becoming a founder. And with the government top-down initiative, I, I do think that if they're creating incentives in that direction, people are going to maybe see potentially as less risky, more exciting path that has a higher payoff in the long term. So hopefully that draws more people towards that path as well. One last thing that I didn't mention that I think maybe is less obvious, but Thailand actually is a very interesting liquidity market. And I think among investors is something that we talk about a lot, right? Like we had the courage, like there's no liquidity, there's no liquidity. What are we going to do? How are we going to get DPI? And I think that's true for most of South East Asia, that like the path of like the best of the best companies, the grabs and the C limited, they'll still IPO or like the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, right? That's still like the gold standard. The Thai stock market is actually very interesting. I guess the context here is that in Southeast Asia, there's not that many M&As of greater than a hundred million dollars. So it's basically not, right? There's not many big buyers in the region yet, but the, the SEP or the stock exchange of Thailand, they're actually the most stock exchange in Southeast Asia. I think there's a daily turnover trading volume of like 1.5 billion or something like that, which makes it number one in Southeast Asia in terms of stock markets here, bigger than, than Singapore. And it also has the highest average price to earning multiples. I think it was like 16 or 17, which is the highest across Southeast Asia. And that's interesting. I think if you're building a Thai company and you see what you could potentially do IPOing in the local stock market, 
that provides a unique path to liquidity that isn't necessarily present in other neighboring countries' stock markets. So I think that's one opportunity or something that's less obvious that people should keep an eye on and be, be conscious of as they're building for Thailand as well. You know, I think that's super spot on. I think that's something that Nick Nash at Asia Partners has been advocating for, which is the rhinoceros, about the concept of basically going for a $100 billion exit in a local stock exchange. And I think what's super fair is that I think that's one part of the Americanization model. It's like everybody's grafting to be like, okay, the ecosystems, you have to hit the billion dollars outcome. And we're almost like borrowing the end state of 2023 yeah. directly. But the US market actually went through that long, I would say three decades of listing at the $100 million mark to $200 million mark in their local stock exchange. Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, you're like, look down on that. It's like, oh, you're going to be an Indonesian company listing at an Indonesia stock exchange. Clearly, yeah. you're not as good as an American unicorn, which is, I think, is an interesting. And it goes back to the capital allocation and strategies of the VCs across the region as well. I think that's why I think the local funds are really important because I think global funds tend to have more of a global or US exit strategy, which requires them to look for companies that hit that billion dollar dynamic. But I think there's a big gap of local funds aiming for that local listing. And I think Thailand is actually one of the few ones because the truth is Singapore doesn't have a great uh, yeah. stock change in terms of as compared to some of the peer markets like Indonesia. Just because it's a small country, right? And the local population has so much exposure to all the global exchanges. On that note, I'd love to wrap things up and summarize the three big takeaways I got from this conversation. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about the fundamental facts of Thailand's ecosystem today, about the fact that there are so many strong fundamentals that have been in existence over the past 10 years, but the fact that Thailand is six in your report out of the top ASEAN six countries in terms of startups with 100 funded. So secondly, I thought it was great to hear and discuss the three pillars of what you feel like are the reasons behind this. So you mentioned cultural is a big chunk. Second one is very much about the corporate-centric nature of the startup because today. And then thirdly, talking very much about the lack of funding, especially local sources. And thirdly, thank you so much for sharing about why you're optimistic, about why there's going to be a change with the government funding, cultural changes, as well as the funding and capital markets available in Thailand. On that note, thank you so much, Wing, for sharing. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Jeremy. This was fun. And yeah, we'll do it again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.